Some of us make our living playing trumpet, while others do more talking than actual playing. No matter our background or ability, we're all fascinated with this piece of plumbing that has earned its place in the pantheon of musical legend, for better or for worse. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm glad you're here. So let's get on with the show. Today we have the pleasure of having Mr. Alexis Barrow on the show. Mr. Barrow was born and raised in Havana, Cuba, and now he makes his living as a great jazz trumpeter in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. You can find him on the web at alexisbarrow.com, and it is a pleasure to have you, sir. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Is it Barrow or Barrow? No, Barrow. Barrow is fine. Okay, good. Yeah, Alexis, yeah, that's Alexis that's Barrow. Fine. The first time. Yeah, oh, I've heard worse, man. <laughs> <laughs> What's the worst you've ever heard? Worst oh, switching of your name? Alexo Barrio and many other versions of that. <laughs> All right. Many variations of the butchering of the name Barrow. Only four letters, man. That's it. <laughs> yeah, how can you mess that up? Exactly, right? Not that hard. Tell us about the scene up there in Toronto, because we don't hear that much about the music scene in Toronto. We hear about the Maple Leafs losing all the time, but outside of that, we don't really hear what's going on up there. It's actually a pretty active music scene here in Toronto. Anything that you might want to find, you can find it up here. There's a, this is a rock scene, there's a country music scene, there's obviously there's a jazz scene that's happening, R&B, funk, hip-hop, you name it. There's, uh, there's a little bit of everything up here and multicultural as well. Indian scene, Indian scene, Caribbean scene, there is there's a bit of everything here. How did you get started on trumpet? I don't know. I think the trumpet found me. My, my mom was a music teacher, a cello teacher, actually. She used to take me to work with her sometimes when we were, when she, we didn't have babysitters. She had to go to work to teach. She would take me. Some days I didn't go to school. We wandered around the school and always end up in the, in, for some reason, in the trumpet classroom. So every time I disappear from her class, she would know where to find. She walked by the trumpet room, and for some reason, I ended up there. I don't remember that. I was too young. <laughs> but uh, I do remember when I was in, like, third, fourth grade. Yeah, I wanted to play the trumpet. My, I was in a music school at the time, but there was a marching band in school. And there was only one trumpet and one spot, and that's what I wanted. That's what I got. And that's it. From there on, it was just a develop, development process. From there on, since my early, I don't know, was it nine years old or something like that. Was this yeah. in Cuba? Yeah, this was in Havana. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so since I was nine, I've been with it. <laughs> I've heard a little bit about the music scene down in Havana. What's it like down there? It's crazy. It's crazy. There is so many bands, and stylistically, there there's a lot of stuff. I think to me, Cuba is or Havana, I would say, is like the New York of the Caribbean. In terms of in terms of music and vibes, like mm -hmm. it's there's all kinds of stuff. And my my first inclination to play jazz was from one of my teachers, and I did a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Like I I studied a lot, and then I tried to make my way in in my at my early age when I was still in school. And uh, but I play a lot of Cuban music. I play a lot of salsa and dance stuff, and I recorded with several artists when I was still in school. I uh, I started playing. With famous, she was mostly known to the world for the Buena Vista Social Club, Miss Portuando. She was in, but she was, she's 
who was a big artist since the 60s. There was a vocal group back in the day called Las de Aida. She was she used to be part of it, and then she had her solo career, and she's been she's been amazingly huge ever since. So when I was like 16, 17, she revamped her band. She started using a lot of younger artists and stuff, musicians from school. And I was fortunate to be part of her band. That's one of the many things I did when I was still about 16. I was still in music school. So yeah, it's the music scene in Havana. It's, it's all levels is amazing. How would you compare it to the scene in Canada? The scene in Toronto is just different because it has a bit more of a variety in terms of world music. Toronto has people from everywhere in the world, right? People bring their music, people bring their culture, people bring their food. So it's, it's a lot more interesting because you, you can navigate a whole lot of different avenues that you don't navigate in, let's just say, in, in, in an in island like Cuba. Cuba is very national. It's very national with its music. We take influences from anywhere and then we make it our own. So anything that comes out is our own product. We make a big gumbo out of it and <laughs> mix it. Yeah, we mix it with what we got and then something new comes out. But it's still Cuban. Don't they have a symphony orchestra there? They have more than one. Like the symphony orchestra, are they going to take Mahler and make it Cuban? No, not in terms of classical. Classical music is a whole different world. Is it? I didn't know. But they want to make it a different world. Uh, like okay. Classical musicians like to make it different. Classical musicians and popular musicians sometimes... They have two different headspace. Really? I wasn't aware. Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> I don't want to get too deep into it. Hey, man, there's only three people listening to this, so you can go as deep as you want. You're not going to offend anybody. <laughs> it's all good. Be offended or anything. But uh, I mean, I grew up in a classical world because my mom was a, a cellist for yeah. 40 years, a national ballet and opera orchestra. So I grew up in, in the whole classical ballet and opera theater, the National Theater. So that that was my, my background in terms of family. Uh, two of my aunts were, one was violin player, the other one was a viola player. My aunt that recently passed away, she was a viola player for the National Symphony Orchestra. She, that's like, I grew up going to the symphony and watching a lot of my teachers were actually players from the symphony orchestra. I, had, I have a, a good relationship with a lot of the classical musicians in Cuba. And to be honest, some of them, do classical during the day and they do something else, a different style of music at night. They might not mess around with Muller or Bach or whoever. At nighttime, they do put their own dancing stuff, a different style. I've noticed that you, you're familiar with the likes of ba Mahler, and you even pronounced Bach correctly. Is that from your mother's training, teaching you like the... Did you, what I'm asking is, did you learn trumpet classically and then move over to jazz. How did that progress? I went to music conservatory. Oh, yeah. uh, I formally studied since the age of, what was I, 12. I went to music school and yeah, I studied classical music. I studied classical music till, uh, till I was, till I finished. It was like 19, 20 years. Yes, I definitely, I didn't, I was the black sheep of the family. I didn't want to go towards the classical music world job type of thing. I wanted to go out and party and play late at night and have fun and dance and all of that. Yeah, I definitely didn't do the classical career. But in Cuba, if you go through a music conservatory, your education is classical music mainly. Yeah. mainly. There's no jazz education. Unless you want to learn on your own. There's no former jazz education. There's not nothing formally that gives you the jazz title or jazz studies. The jazz studies you got to do on your own. Yeah. If you're interested on learn from player to player, find scout books, find exercises, find all the resources that you can and then make yourself better. That's pretty much it. But classical, yes. Technique, a lot of technique. 
lot of technique in keyboard. It was uh, that's part of a big thing in school. I'm sure it translated well to your playing jazz. Oh, absolutely! It helped. Yeah. It helped immensely. Yes. What is the big difference between a classical mindset and a jazz mindset? The reason I my question is sounds a little bit weird, but when you listen to classical music versus jazz music, I feel like, and I was listening to some of your stuff right before we got onto this call, and I was like, I feel like my mind is expanding. It's not like I'm on drugs or anything, but I feel like I'm just, I feel like my mind is just expanding in ways that I, it doesn't feel when I'm l listening to classical music. I don't know if this makes any sense at all. I'm going to go with it. I think... The, the emotions are the same because they're all, we are all, but the way of expressing it in colors, it has evolved from a traditional way. The, the traditional way that it, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say evolve. I think the correct comparison would be mix. It has mix because the way that classical music, the way that, you know, Vivaldi or Mozart or any of those guys will, will like the way that they wrote, it was it's in a particular type of, style even though you change from like the the romantic period to the classic period to the more modern period of styles of classical music depending on what it is Bach is one thing motor is one thing and then beethoven is something completely different they there were certain lines that didn't break and things that didn't mix as much right that when you hear like jazz or something more modern you, you hear influences not from european only but you hear a lot of African influences, you hear a lot of Indian music influences, right? So I think by mixing all that, it expands your your intellect and expands the way that you receive the music because it's not the same thing that you're hearing a guy playing a clarinet concert, concerto that if you hear a guy playing, playing clarinet in New Orleans, right? Same instrument, but different influences. So when you mix that, then you expand. Music hits you in a different way because you're hearing things that maybe you heard before, but not within the same context, right? Yeah. So that's that I think that's why that's what makes that's what makes a difference, especially for whoever hears it. Like it hits you different because it has different aspects. It's not it's full with a little bit of hot stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. But like back in Mozart's day, what he wrote was his contemporaries with hot sauce. He had, I think he had he had the same type of effect on the brain. It was hot sauce that came from his creative experience. Yeah. The world that he lived on and his live experience made him made his music also the time the time period that he lived on. But he I don't think experienced pre close or slaves like African slaves living with him to the point that you can share even just a musical experience. I don't think I don't think he did. Correct me if I'm wrong. I could be wrong, but I don't think he did. Like many of those are they, there wasn't it wasn't that connection with a different part of the world in terms of music. It was spiced up, but it was spiced up by their musical experience, by the everyday experience, by the by their life, why they experience in their life. And if they didn't if they didn't experience that, then obviously that wouldn't have had an influence on that. So you're saying that his music was influenced by his reality. Exactly. And, I think and, and, all of our music is influenced by our reality, regardless of whatever style of music it is. And he may not have experienced African slaves in the streets of Vienna, but maybe there was an another form of oppression in the musical establishment at the time that influenced him. The world has been like that forever. 
Right. So some kind of repression, um, I don't doubt it. And what, the reason why I say Africans is because it's such a different influence in the music and it made such an impact and makes such a difference in modern music when classical music and African music started mixing. And then you have Cuba music as an example of that. Cuba music, right. Cuba music is a great example of that thing, that, that mix between the African and the Cuban, the European. How is that the perfect mix? No, it's a perfect example. A perfect example of the mixture of <clears throat> African and European. Exactly. How what did the Africans brought to Cuba besides their religions and uh, a little bit of the culture that some of them were lucky enough not to forget? They brought their drums. They brought the dance. They brought something called, like, which is a drum beat that is pretty much the heart of their percussion and, and the African music. They brought that to Cuba and then Cuba, Cubans, Af free slaves started developing something called a rumba, right? Rumba was something, yeah, rumba. It's not, you've seen the, you've seen the term rumba in ballroom dance. If you hear ballroom dancing, there is a term on ballroom dancing called rumba. Isn't that the, isn't that the vacuum cleaner, the robotic vacuum cleaner? <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe it is. <laughs> I think it is actually rumba. <laughs> so you're saying the Africans brought the rumba. To so, our so no, the Africans didn't brought the rumba. The Africans brought the clave and they brought their drums. And in Cuba, certain rhythms got developed from that. And one of them is called rumba. So rumba is not the ballroom dancing rumba. It's actually the original rumba you will have to hear. It uses the same clave. But as part of the developing, the, uh, the Spanish conquistadors, they brought the Spanish guitar, the classical Spanish guitar, and then also cut up in, with the farmers in the late 1800s, early 1900s in Cuba. And, you know, when the style of musical called son, S-O-N, developed, it used percussion and it used the Spanish guitar and it used something that developed also called tres, which is three double strings, the cuatro, and there's Venezuelan cuatro and there's Cuban cuatro. The Cuban quatro is, again, four, four sets of double strings. But in order for the song to be developed as a style of music, it had to have a rhythmic pattern. That rhythmic pattern was combined with the African rhythms that were brought. So Cuban music is a perfect example of European versus African. No verses together mixed up with the African influences. And if you look at modern Cuban music, a piano it's, is definitely very classical inclined. Like you have to have a good technique in order to play a cue on bar because it's always good. It's a lot of, there's a lot of double hands arpeggios happening, right? So you need to develop your skills in order to play any modern cue of music that was from like mid nineties till today. If you're a piano player, you need to have some skills because the piano part is not easy. And that is an influence that's combined with classical Eastern, Eastern European technique of classical music and the actual Q1 rhythm, which is the development of what the Africans brought. So it's an example, even up to today, of what how that got mixed up. Uh, I don't know if I asked this, but first of all, when did you move from Cuba to Toronto or to Canada? It was at the end of at the end of 2000. So 2000, 2000 2001, actually 2001 was when I finally. And how yeah. old were you? I was 21, I was gonna be 22. When did you get interested in jazz and when did you like take it seriously? This is my main thing. I got interested because of a trumpet teacher of mine. 
one of my one of my trumpet teachers was helping me with problems that I had in my embouchure, and he uh, he showed me some videos of trumpet players, black trumpet players with big thick lips, and he didn't say what it is they're playing. Just check out how they play, right? Look at their embouchure. Look at what they can do with the instrument. A way to encourage me: don't be discouraged because you have big lips. Because there was some of my earlier teachers didn't really taught me technically properly the embouchure for people that have thicker lips, right? Black people with big, thick lips. So this teacher, he knew that was the problem. And so he corrected it. And he said, look, there is a bunch of guys that, that in the history of trumpet that have thick lips. And this is how they, um, technically how they, they do. So it was more of an encouraging video, but the, the video was, it was literally the, the history of the jazz trumpet taught by Wayne Marsalis. One of those, I think it's from the 80s or early 90s. So that video, I was intensely looking at the trumpet players, but then I got cut up. Wow, these people can play. Like, what are they doing? What is this? Is this written somewhere? So then since I got moved by the music, then he gave me a couple of tapes. He said, okay, check them out. Check these out. And then I started listening to it. And then that's it. I was like, oh man, this is, how can I do this? I would love to do this. I want to do this. I don't even know what it's called, but I want to do it. So that's how I, my attention got cut off in jazz. Jazz is jazz. I don't think jazz is my main thing. I think trumpet is my main thing. I'm not, I would say myself, I'm a jazz player. I'm a jazz lover. I love to play jazz. I like to improvise, but I played a whole bunch of other styles. And I think creative music is above anything. doesn't matter. You call it however you want to call it. I think creative music is my thing. The more creative that we can be, the better it is for the music, regardless of the style it is. If you, some people want to call it jazz it up and make it jazzy, by all means, they can call it whatever they want. Um, but yeah, I think jazz is only a, a terminology so you can put it in a category. All right. So you don't call yourself a jazz musician. If they want to say, hey, you play jazz, you're a jazz guy, I would say, okay, sure. But when because, I, Alexis, there's only two choices. There's classical or jazz. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> All right. I would like to hear those guys in Cuba, what do you think about it? <laughs> well, I classical jazz? What? Nothing else? Yeah, I don't think, yeah, I wouldn't call myself a jazz guy just because my interest is goes beyond that. It's just about creating. What was the name of this teacher that gave you this? encouragement. Paquito. Francisco Tomas is his name. Paquito is how everybody know, know him. But he was a teacher in, in, in an area of town that wasn't actually my neighborhood at all. So I had to bike through the city to get to his place two or three times a week. So yeah, I would bike, I would bike from my apartment to my art school for a half an hour, 40 minutes up here. And then two or three times a week, I'll bike the opposite way just to have trumpet lesson with him. So it would take me by an hour and a half, maybe two hours to get to his spot. And then I'll bike home after that. <laughs> so it, it wasn't without a sacrifice, let me tell you. It was, yeah, it was a bit of sacrifice. I, I really had to do it because that was the only way I could actually continue playing trumpet. Why did everybody call him Puck? It's a thing with, with Spanish. Certain names have like a pseudonym or something. Yeah. Um, to, what does Paquito mean? Why would they call him Fra Francisco? Like a lot of the a lot of Francisco people that I call their names Francisco, they call him Paco. Now okay. I don't know exactly I don't know exactly 
Why they do that? That's a Spanish thing. It's from Spain. That comes from Spain. So a lot of Franciscos, they call them Paco. So if your name is Francisco, chances are you ended up being named Paco by your friends, Paco. And then Paquito is just small Paco. But why do they do that? I don't know. Where does it come from? I know come from Spain, but the reason I wouldn't know because that's it's been oh, forever okay. like that. Yeah. So there's no real significance. That's just his nickname. No, no, that's just oh, okay. because his name is Francisco. That's why, why is he the only reason that you could play trumpet when you were a kid in Havana? It's not the only reason I could play trumpet. He was the main reason because he changed my ambusher. Like I, I uh, would oh, I was yeah, I was the I was deficient, technically deficient when a few years after he started. And the reason was because I didn't have a program. The only teacher that said, hey, I know what your problem is and I can fix it was him. So uh, I think to him that I can play it because otherwise, otherwise I would have not been able to continue. So he had the knowledge that you needed to continue doing what you loved. To, yeah, to fix, to fix my problems. And it was a good thing that I was in school. At that time, so it was it was the best time to do it. Not as a professional, not as after I was done school, because then I could I could still develop and continue all the way to the end in a better way than yeah. many players that I know that that had to fix after they finished school when they started officially their professional career, and I, and that wasn't fun because then you have to stop and start again. Oof, I can imagine. So you're in school and you were able to suck and not lose your job. Yeah, we didn't have a job at the time. That's what I mean. You didn't have the pressure of, if I don't do this, then I don't eat this month. And I know people that definitely had to do that. Yeah. I know. It's not a good, yeah, it's not a good thing. So for me, I was lucky. I was early enough that I could change it while I was still in school. And then by the time I was finishing school, I was already back into the horse. Okay, so you're like hustling as a kid in Havana, and you're biking all over the place. And it, it speaks to me like, you really wanted to do trumpet and you were like on the verge of quitting because of these issues with your embouchure. And then you found this one person and you're just, you just put extraordinary effort that you wouldn't have put in unless you were really serious about it. Once you're in a conservatory, it's this do or die. If you don't do it, you're out. Like you're gone. After you've been at it for a few years, you don't really want to get kicked out for some reason that you don't know. Like, whoa, how can I fix this? Instead of getting kicked out, let's just try to fix this. So that's kind of that mentality. Coming to that in your conservatory where like your teachers were saying, if you don't fix this, we have to part ways. It's about, it's literally about, you know, your grades, right? So if you're not good enough to keep your grades in your main instrument, which is a reason why you're there, then you're not, you're going to get kicked out. Yeah. So you saw the handwriting on the wall. It's like something has to change. Yeah, you better get this fixed up or you're not going to be here next year. So, now, how, now, yeah. how does that experience compare to your experience now in Toronto as a professional musician? Do you have the same type of pressure where you're like, I have to perform or else I don't make my living? How is it similar or different? I think in, 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 um, in whoever decides to be a musician and wants to do it for a living, you always have that pressure. You have to, if you want to be a performer, like you say, not a musician, but a performer, you always have that pressure. Because, you know, if you don't if you don't work, if you don't play, if you don't do what you love, what you're going to do. There's a lot of people that, that uh, unfortunately, they're not being lucky enough to uh, to do music full time. It's mainly, a, to me, I didn't grow up with it. I only saw that when I moved to North America. I was like, oh, 
okay, so it's a lot of people that have to have something else because there's not enough work for them. I grew up in a society that music and musician was one of the biggest things that you can be. Like if you're a musician, if you're a big, if you're a good musician and you're like you're talented and you even even not necessarily super talented, but you're good enough to to make your way up the the ladder to some of the top bands, you're set. You're good. You're good. You're good. Right? You could you could people will recognize you in the street even as well not people but some people will recognize you. There's a lot of musicians in the city, so eventually people would know. Some people would know who you are. But you get to travel a lot. You get to tour a lot. Be on TV. Do shows. Do parties. I make a decent living out of it. At least that's how it used to be. Anyways, make a decent living better than, than other people. So a lot of people wanted to be as as good as they could. And music, playing music was something that you could do for a living. Then moving here, yeah, I, could, I, see, I saw a lot of good musicians that couldn't make a living out of music. Yeah, that definitely changed my perspective and I had to make sure that I could do whatever I could to make this as my living, as my career, as what I, as what I do. So yeah, it's a slightly different. The pressure is definitely here. But again, there's so many uh, different music scenes when i moved here i went into different scenes so eventually i would get work from different sites people people would even know that i'm playing in this scene or that scene they think oh you're q and you're playing this right and then they the people that play jazz are like oh you but you're doing something else and then like i I would go on scout all the scenes i could and it was a learning curve for me that was it was great because i learned i got into a lot of music scenes and I learned repertoire, I learned R&B, funk repertoire, I learned some of the jazz, standard R&B stuff, Latin, traditional, q one. It was a lot of stuff that I learned. And that's how I got to get myself known around the city. Now, did you go straight from Havana to Toronto or have you been there the whole time you've been out of Cuba? Living? Yes. Yeah, yeah, living. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I moved. Yeah, move. This, so, I, so, I didn't live anywhere else before q one or after Toronto. Right, yeah. Yeah. So when you get to Toronto, <laughs> are you like just taking whatever gig you can get. What I'm asking is, how did you make a living or make a name for yourself in Toronto as a musician? The first time I came to Toronto, I was on tour with with a singer. It was a Cuban band. So we were here actually for a while, a few months. So, so I met a few musicians in, 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 in Toronto. And then I went back home. And then when I moved back, when I moved here, finally, I, a friend of mine took me to, a, to an R&B jam. And I was like funk R&B, that, that kind of music. I always enjoyed it. Yeah, when he took me to the jam, it was at that time, I didn't know it was some of the top players in the city for that kind of music. So I was like, oh man, I love this. This is the other part of me that, that I do. And I talked to the people and I made my, 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 my way in and I got invited to bring my horn. And they told me, hey, if you can every week, bring your horn and you know, just sit in. So I did that. I was a dishwasher at a restaurant for about maybe four months when I first moved. And then I was literally doing that, doing words with jam, either jazz or R&B. And then when the summer came, since I was I'm a Q on trumpet player in the scene, I started getting calls for Latin gigs and Q on gigs and all of that. So then everything just scaled from there. So like the people that I met through during the winter in the R&B scene, they started calling me. They, I started working with, with a legendary drummer here that uh, passed away a few years ago named Archie Aline. Archie Aline was one of the legendary bebop drummers that that was from Trump. And he had a band called Collage with K. And at some point was the only 
Black Canadian jazz band in the country. So yeah, he invited me to join his band. And literally, that was my dream come true. Because yeah, it was he was like the perfect example of of what jazz, traditional jazz bebop was. From the way he walked, from the way he spoke, from the way he dressed, from just his, his, his entire being. I think I learned more about the music and that type of music from just hanging out with him rather than playing with him. His sound was the, the perfect sound. He was friends with Dizzy and he was friends with, with a bunch of those guys from that era. Ella and all these people. Every time they would come to, to Toronto, they used to go to a place called, I think it was the Town Tavern or the Colonial or something. can't remember exactly what they sparked. And they asked for Archie. Archie was the drummer here in town. Every time they would come up. So he was, that was his thing. And I was fortunate that I, I, he asked me to join the band. So I played, I worked with him for about six years. And that's how I got myself a bit into the jazz scene in Toronto, because I started playing with Collage, with Archie Aline. And Doc Richardson was the sax player that co-founder of the band. And they took me under their wing. And that's how I got into that. So I was Cuban, R&B funk, straight ahead jazz, anything in between. Do you ever get to a point where you can refuse gigs or just specialize in one particular style over another? I don't think specializing is, if you have enough gigs or enough of, the, or enough of a name to to have the the luxury of saying, hey, you know what? I only got to specialize in this type of music. I don't really want to do anything else. Maybe I would have done it, but no, I don't think so. Sometimes... These gigs that I would say, I don't think I want to do this. I, I, sometimes you turn down a gig because, you know, it's not your thing. But for the most part, I try to do when I'm available. I try to do what I can. If it's not something that I think that I would do a good job at, I probably wouldn't take it. Not for the challenge, it's just because it probably wouldn't vibe with me. The uh, I'm on your website, on your homepage, and you've got some interesting looking equipment. <laughs> what kind of a trumpet is it? And what kind of weird mouthpiece is that? It's a, this one. It's a it's a barrel model. It's made by uh, by Carol Brass. Carol it's Brass. Carol Brass. Yeah, C A R O L Brass. Like Christmas, Carol. Christmas Carol. Yeah. yeah, like Christmas Carol. Yeah, yeah. It's ma- it's it's made by Carol Brass. So I uh, approached them and we collaborated on a model, which is this one is the original model that. Wow. Uh, this is the original that we uh, collaborated. They have something called the Euro Bell, which is the bell pointing up. So I didn't come up with that. That's not, that wasn't mine. They already did that. But I modified their their original models. It became my model. They put my name on it. And then after that, I continued working with them. And then I, we co-designed this one, which is, this is the Barrow Model 2, which is the one of the ones that is promoted now. So I'm a co-designer of this, and they both have my name, Barrow Model 1 and Barrow Model 2. And this is uh, my mouthpiece. It's made by uh, books made in Argentina. It's We stopped for now because they have some problems in Argentina with the inflation, and actually the machine that did it is, is out of service at the moment. So we're doing some renovations. So I'm not making them as of right now. But the trumpet, yes, the trumpet is being produced in in, in Taiwan, yeah. which is the show. Yeah, got it. And who did you say makes the mouthpiece? Is it a firm that we are familiar with, or no? Oh, it's a small shop I, in okay. Argentina. Yeah, yeah, small shop in Argentina. But at the moment, it's stall. Yeah, because, yeah, the equipment. But uh, the trumpet is made in Taiwan. Okay. I was also looking at the one on your. I was on your bio page. That's the one that I saw. 
And it's yeah. got, it's, it doesn't have the, is that the borrow model model as well the, with the straight? No, that was the Pimoria. So before, before I, I switched to Kale Brass, I used to be a Pimoria artist. Pimoria? Right? Pimoria, yes. It's a company, there's a lot of guys, there's a lot of guys that play with that. Pimoria. The, mo- the model that I played with was discontinued, but the parts were made by Kale Brass. So I approached Kale Brass and then we, we came up with my model using a couple of things that it was used on the previous trumpet. And uh, that's it. That's like the short version of the story. Yeah, I'm sure there's a long version too, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's All been right. a few years. Okay. So why is it that there's so many trumpets available to choose from? Why do we need another one? I don't think, I don't think you need another one. I think you need whatever you like and whatever works for you in terms of sound and in terms of look and in terms of response and in terms of action. Why people pick a trumpet is because they feel connected, because they like it, because they think it it resonates with them. So if you find a trumpet that has the look that is attractive to some people, and on top of that, once you actually play it, it has the action, the reaction, and the sound that you're looking for, then it's just one more option basically why do we have why do we have so many options in food and clothes in colognes in everything why is there so many options do we need one more and religions why are there so many options because people have different tastes and different experiences exactly right and people want to try as a guitar player i have not met one professional guitar player that only has one guitar impossible it's impossible like any professional guitar player that you know has at least three, at least. Like that's the minimum <laughs> basic, right? Yeah. And what do they use it? They use it for different jobs, for different sounds, and different looks, and different things. For many years, the home players were like, "We got one. You get one trumpet. That's your trumpet. You open it up. You use it." But if you play a variety of styles or you you're different musical environments, perhaps not the same instrument you create the sound is in your head the sound is in the way you play but not every instrument might respond the same way in in the same different musical environments i think it's wise to have more than one and <clears throat> if you if for any reason one breaks then you screw because <laughs> you got no replacement either does that curved bell affect the sound at all or is that just does it just look cool no, it doesn't affect the sounds. It affects the way that it resonates a little, or the way that it gets back to you a little bit. Not in a drastic way, but I like how I like how it re- and how I, and I like how it feels and how it looks from my perspective as a trumpet player. That's the reason why I guess Dizzy never went back to a straight straight trumpet. Sure. Um, what's his name? Christian Scott. He has his his bell up too. It's a difference. If you get connected, if you find it interesting you find something that that you like how it is then playing with a straight trumpet is is it sound it looks funny now to me it looks yeah. different because i've played like that for so many years now it's become a it's become ingrained in your own mind this is what i have yeah no i mean it's not even just about the mind i could switch but it just looks funny from right. my perspective it, it looks it, funny. It, and it would change your perspective completely to go back oh, yeah. to it yeah oh yeah absolutely yeah. Somebody on this podcast recently, I'm not going to mention the name, but he made this statement. I want to get your thoughts on it, whether you agree or disagree. He said, and this is not a verbatim quote, you understand. 
but it is something along the lines of music is 1% the trumpet, 9% the mouthpiece, and 90% what is in your mind. Do you agree or disagree with that? So is 1% the trumpet, 9% the mouthpiece, and 90% of what's in your mind? Correct. That's what was said. Do you agree or disagree? I would disagree as a trumpet player from a trumpet player's perspective. If you want to play, let's just say, in the style of Maynard Ferguson, and you have a heavy trumpet, dark sounding trumpet, you're not going to achieve what you're looking for, even though the sound is in your head, even though you might play in the proper way, sound-wise. Forgive me for interrupting, but this is assumed that you have found the right trumpet that works for you. I'm saying, I'm saying, if like in terms of the in terms of trumpet, for example, yeah. right? The, if you don't if you don't find the trumpet that would allow you to do what you want to do. But what I'm saying is that you can assume that you have found the right one that works for you. Okay, so if you're like a screaming lead player, you have found the right equipment that works for you. But beyond that, there, there's only so much that factors into your success as a musician. Obviously, yes. But I don't think what's in your head is the 90%. It's a big, it's a big, it's a big percentage. It's definitely a big percentage. If you have a, if you have a deep mouthpiece, it doesn't matter what's in your head. It's just not going to come out. Or it's going to take you, it's going to take you, if you, and I'm talking, referring to, for example, the Maynard Ferguson comparison, you need to find the right equipment. That's a big plus. That's a big plus. I don't think, I don't think it's only a 9%. I think it's a bigger, it's bigger than 9%. And obviously, once you have the, once you have something close to the right equipment, then, you know, that's all up to you. In our mind, in our physical abilities, is the biggest percentage. Really? What you can create, what you can do, and how you physically. Physical abilities. Trumpet is a physical instrument. If you have a, if you have a hernia, you're not going to be able to play the same way that you, if you don't. If you have back pain, you're not going to play the same way. If you have stomach pain, you're not going to play the same way. If your legs hurt, you're not going to play the same way. If you have leg cramps, you're not going to play the same way. If you feel tired, you're not going to play the same way. If you feel sick, you're not going to play the same way. So the trumpet is entirely physical, entirely, completely physical. And you can also use it, use that physicality to express yourself and make the trumpet sound the way you want to sound. It doesn't mean, you know, in any particular way, aggressive or not, it's just whatever it is that you want to do, right? However it is that you want to do, why this is sounded different than Chet Baker, why Miles sounded different than, I don't know, any, anybody else. He didn't sound like anybody. So it's mind, but it's also physical. Like it's mind and body. Okay, that's really good input. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so at the end of the day, they're all numbers, 1%, 9%. 67.42% of all statistics are made up on the spot. Did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, it's not even about the number. It's just the amount. You got to give it more credit to your gear. Definitely got to give more credit to your gear. Because people used to say before, oh, you know, those guys back in the days, they used to play what they used to play. And they made it. Look at Louis Armstrong's trumpet. You know, it, the, when you look at it, you like the way the trumpet is going to sound. Because by by seeing it, it's that 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 trumpet is gonna have that type of sound. So it's not it's not only what's on your head. Obviously, it's you. But the gear is very important. You have to have the right gear for the right gig, and especially nowadays that I do 
several gigs. I do a lot of lead playing on the chair, a lead chair, big band. I do a lot of R&B stuff, like a lot of horn sections, smaller horn section. I do a lot of stuff that I'm the only horn player. Could that be jazz? Could that be R&B? Could that be anything else? I make it work. And for many years, I only have one trumpet and I made it all work with one trumpet and one mouthpiece. But I understood that later on that when I tried different styles, different models, different brands, some are better for other things. Some will bring, you know, what I'm looking for. So I think variety is good. Maybe the best answer is find the equipment that works for you and then focus on other things like developing your mind and your body. Exactly. Alexis Barrow has been my guest and we're running a bit short on time, but I always have one question that I like to ask all of my guests at the very end of our conversation. And that is, if you were to go back to, let's just say you're, I don't know, 19 years old, you're just out of conservatory in Havana, Cuba, and you have the experience and you have the life wisdom that you have now, and you can impart some experience or some knowledge to this person, 19-year-old Alexis, what would you say? It could be about trumpet, about life, about anything. Do it all over again. Do it all. I'm, I'm very satisfied with what I've done musically. And I would say, hey, go harder. Put yourself out there. Any other goals that, that you wanted to achieve? And not that I didn't. You can always, you can always go more confident. When you're 19 years old, there are some people that are super confident at 19. There are some people that are like, it's okay, I can do it, but I'm not going to brag about it. I've never been the bragging type. I don't like it. I think it proves yourself with actions rather than words. But yeah, I think the more you are exposed to certain things, the more knowledge and experience you get. So that's what I mean with going harder. Get yourself more exposed to right. to to many more things, and you know you probably get to learn more things quicker. Yes, you yeah. are not a bragger. You very casually brought up the fact that you have an instrument. That bears your name. You ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> I only answer your question. <laughs> I'm having fun at your expense. You understand that. I know. Man, I, know. <laughs> I want to give a special thanks to Rich Porter. Oh, yes. Put us in touch. He reached out on, I guess it was Facebook, and he just said, if you're interested in guests, I know a couple of people, and I'm always interested in guests. So this is a PSA. If you would make a great guest on the show, please, by all means, sure. just find me on Facebook. That's probably the best way. Just send a message. And so thank you, Rich, for making the introduction. Alexis, yeah. it's been a real pleasure. It's been a real honor to have you on the show and get to know you a little bit, pick your brain about trumpet and life, how the two intersect. I hope that we can do it again sometime. But in the meantime, thank you for being on the show, my friend. My pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. Yes. That's a wrap for this edition of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. As a reminder, if you enjoy this show and want to help support it, the best way to do so is to subscribe to my daily email newsletter. I try to keep things fun yet informational, infotaining, as they say, and I think you're going to enjoy receiving them. Visit TrumpetDynamics.com to subscribe to the newsletter and catch up on previously released episodes of the podcast. Thank you again for pressing play on today's episode, and we'll be in your earballs soon. Music